Today, it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce someone I believe uh, is a rising star in our federal parliament. And just a few months ago, the Australian newspaper uh, caught the significance of this rising star and they published a front page story. And it said, quote, by some measures, 36-year-old former lawyer Amanda Stoker arrived in federal parliament at just about the right time. In a year in which older conservative men embarrass themselves and the coalition, Senator Stoker represents the young, fresh face of free speech and traditional values in a party, she says, has vacated the field out of shame. The Australian went on to say, quote, Senator Stoker, who grew up in a working class family in Sydney's far southwest at Campbelltown, before working four jobs throughout university, including at a linen store and as a waitress, recognises that she may not be from the same stock as a classic Liberal member. Her father is a plumber and neither of her parents finished high school. She went to public schools as a kid. The Australian concluded, but this hands-on experience in a family where her parents were able to determine their own future and help their children on the way solidified a feeling she had that life is better when government gets out of the way. So with that, please welcome Amanda Stoker. Hello all. It's hard to... Can I move that just a touch? It's going to be hard to meet those expectations, so can we, can we just bring them down a touch? <laughs> Thank you all for being here. It's very generous of you all to um, invest that much time in, in hearing what is the Coalition's most junior backbencher has to say. In a month in which we've had the report of the Royal Commission into Banking and Financial Services and a verdict that will continue to rock the Catholic Church for some time, I'd like to take this chance to discuss with you the declining trust that Australians have in some of the institutions that have traditionally been the source of our stability and our strength. Trust in politicians and in democracy is at an all-time low, as is trust in the judiciary. A survey conducted nationally by the Museum of Australian Democracy and the University of Canberra last year found that Australians' satisfaction with their democracy has more than halved in the period between 2007 and 2018. And in some communities, that distrust and disillusionment was higher than 80%. So if those trends continue, less than 10% of Australians will trust their major institutions by 2025. That's really soon. We're facing a crisis where people are turning their back on the very system of um, democratic governance that has conferred upon them more freedom and economic prosperity than any other political system known to man. You might perhaps expect that if we were deep in a recession. Mark Evans, a professor from the University of Canberra, said it's really unusual to see such a crisis in political trust when the economy is going so well, at least compared with most of history. Banks fared a little better on the trust scale, but not by much. 16% um, of Australians trust political parties. 31% trust 
trust federal government and 34% trust our banks. Mind you, that was before the worst parts of the Royal Commission. <laughs> Part of that loss of trust has been earned. I think we have to acknowledge that. When banks charge customers for services they don't deliver, when politicians abuse the privilege of publicly paid expenses, or when figures in the church fail to protect children from harm, it understandably burns trust and rebuilding it is a slow process. But there's so much more to the story than that. When our media, our university graduates and others have been taught almost exclusively postmodernism, they are always looking for the power play, always looking for the agenda behind every action with a deep cynicism that infects their thinking. Perhaps that reflects the way that individuals now react as individual members of a society. You know, when we don't show up for an appointment or a date, when we don't say what we mean to someone's face, when we don't look out for our neighbours or our extended family, we break the bonds of trust we have with our fellow man. That lack of trust in institutions is at least to a point a mirror on our personal conduct, albeit taken in aggregate. The fundamentals that built this nation, they are the same values that made Western civilization rise to become the most freedom and prosperity giving values known to man, have been under attack for some time. And I'd suggest that this has something to do with our inability to trust. There has been a concerted effort among the academic class and the media and intellectual class that flows from it to paint the legacy of Western civilization as little more than conquering and oppressing others, stripping them of their resources and dignity and abandoning them once that wealth is taken. What a supremely negative view of some of the richest history uh, we've ever known. If that's all Western civilization were to stand for, then one could possibly be forgiven for an antipathy towards it. It underpins that sense of collective guilt that permeates the teaching of history and the political discussion we face in, in the modern world. The effectiveness of the intellectual effort to destroy trust in our institutions, and I, I think that's what it is. There's been a concerted effort to destroy these institutions, coupled with the wrongdoing that has emerged with some of them, means that there are inevitably calls for greater regulation and control. Plenty will call for more regulation of the banks with little appreciation of the fact that the last 1,000 pages of legislation regulating them had little to no impact. Calls for more statutory interference with the work of the church will probably come. Politicians already face detailed reporting and transparency requirements and I'd expect calls for ever more regulation to emerge from the Aged Care Royal Commission in due course. Yesterday in Queensland, a Human Rights Act was passed, essentially a bill empowering judges to become arbiters of controversial social questions about whose rights prevail in circumstances where they clash. Those who cheered it on played upon the notion that these matters should be above politics, as though politicians couldn't be trusted with them, and yet, by conferring political decision-making upon the judiciary, a body that doesn't have the check of regular elections, we can expect the public's trust in it to be undermined further. The guts of it is this. When we don't trust our institutions, 
there are calls for more regulation and control of them. The problem is that such moves inevitably limit our freedom and they don't deal with the heart of the disappointment that led to the distrust. They don't deal with the cultural problems that caused the undermining in the first place. Indeed, they probably affirm all of those things that lead us to pitch for the lowest common denominator. Even freedom itself doesn't seem well understood in the general population, though I expect it probably is in this room. <laughs> That's concerning because if we don't know what it is and why it matters, then you give it away far too cheaply. If we think of freedom as a system of obedience to the unenforceable, our choice to participate in a social contract in which we are not compelled, then there is a deep link between freedom and self-restraint. Understanding it in this way highlights its roots in the Judeo-Christian tradition, where God gave individuals free will so that they had the capacity to choose to honour him. Without disrespecting any other faiths or traditions, there is no other that conceives of freedom in this way though they might use the word in a different kind of context. This kind of freedom is deeply individualistic and it honours the capacity and value of each and every person. But popular consciousness doesn't really make a distinction at present between the notion of freedom from, the notion of a negative freedom, the idea that we should be free of the bad stuff, like slavery and oppression, and freedom for, a positive freedom. Making the case for these positive freedoms, freedom of thought, conscience, belief, freedom of association and freedom of speech, freedom of religion, has never been harder. The dangers to freedom, though, are both external and internal. External is the, I guess, relatively simple idea that others are coming for our freedoms, seeking to limit them either through the use of law or simply by ignoring the existing law. The external danger is when our freedom is conquered. But the internal danger is real too, though it is perhaps harder to articulate and a little more sensitive. It's the internal corruption of freedom, so that our freedom is no longer coupled with self-restraint or self-discipline, but it's instead a permissiveness or licence that descends into that which ends up harming ourselves. When we think of many of the social ills of our time that seem so hard to fix, problems with addiction, poor mental health, the knock-on problem areas of child safety or intergenerational disadvantage, the internal corruption of freedom has a good deal to do with it. It sounds outdated now, but only a few generations ago it was the accepted wisdom that if a person, even one who started out poor, finished school, got a trade or a profession, married before they had children and stayed that way, they would almost always end up being in the middle class. Almost always. Those three basic steps, as unfashionable as they may be now, remain true. All the data supports it. I'll probably be called judgmental for putting it so plainly, but this advice is less often shared today and the failure to do so and the failure to follow it characterises the most intergenerationally disadvantaged people in our community. It's a conversation we need to have. We are still a land of great opportunity, but our problem with self-restraint is undermining outcomes, 
but it's also providing a weapon for those who despise freedom to take it away. All of this highlights the relationship between rights and responsibilities. Of course, people like rights for themselves. They feel virtuous when they talk about human rights, though those who do so most tend to care more about some rights and some people's rights more than they care about others. Um, I certainly experienced that well and truly in the debates we had last year about religious freedom in the Parliament. But they're less keen on responsibilities. Again, unless it's the kind of big-picture problem that in their bleating they're really asking someone else to take care of. So you can think about hysterical calls for action on climate change from people who enjoy in abundance the fruits of our high electricity, high fuel consumption age in that category. Or in calls for other people to be taxed highly to pay for any number of initiatives, um, all of which have quite contestable value. But there's no mutual responsibility. The notion that with the many rights we have, comes with it personal responsibilities that go beyond ourselves. Identity politics plays a really important role in all of this and it's core to postmodernist thinking, whether you call it anti-colonialism or critical theory or something else. In its search for a power agenda in everything, it badges all human relationships as one simply between a victim and an oppressor. The solution it offers to identify victims of past injustice and often in past generations rather than in the present time, and elevate them over others who, because of their oppressor status, are supposed to accept present punishment for past misdeeds, is one that is toxic on so many levels. The victim develops a sense of entitlement to that elevated status, and if not given, whether by government or by others, it confirms victimhood. It's deeply disempowering to the victim who comes to believe they're not capable of transcending their minority status. It breeds resentment in those who are unjustly branded oppressors based on historical misdeeds or history rewritten ungenerously. And it makes our society tribal, about allegiances to groups based on skin colour or sexual preference or gender. The Jewish people seem to understand the disempowerment of victimhood though the Holocaust would have given the greatest possible justification for such an attitude, the cultural leaders seem to understand that victimhood was self-defeating. It's a big part of the reason for their great success, despite their comparatively small number. Imagine the benefits that would be experienced for the long term if we were to develop such a resilience in, for example, our Indigenous community. The elevation of particular tribes over others, as well as their story of victimhood over the history or ideas of others, is used to justify restraints on free speech that today are greater than we have ever seen before in this nation. That confinement operates socially as well as legally. Not only can you be dragged before a tribunal for expressing a view that confronts the perspective of a protected minority class, but you can expect to be hauled before the HR department if you are insufficiently politically correct at work, attacked on social media or elsewhere for failing to conform. The effect, though, is to silence people whose views just don't align with this new elite. Most sensible people just don't need the hassle. They're busy. They're trying to raise their families. They're trying to get ahead, trying to pay the bills, trying to run their business. And they don't need the hassle or the cost 
of the fight with HR or with the tribunal. They don't want to have to defend themselves on social media or be essentially defamed in a way that can never be recovered. They don't want the social awkwardness or the risk of shame that comes with this kind of confrontation. It's easier just to put your head down and mind your own business. The effect, though, is to create the impression that the identity politics agenda is the accepted norm and to deepen this cycle of silence. It doesn't, however, make the sense in each of these people that something is deeply wrong go away. What has always been the historical strength of Australian society has been that, as Menzies put it so well in his first Forgotten People speech, that the things that unite Australians are infinitely more important and enduring than the things that divide us. That was true in his time, and even as recently as in Howard's time. But the way that identity politics seeks to separate and dehumanise different tribes within our society deeply threatens social cohesion. Taken to its extreme, it has the potential to descend into violence of the kind that has become civil war in more tribally oriented nations. Indeed, we've seen shades of that on our university campuses already, where groups of students find a particular idea so offensive to their identity group that they feel entitled to not just demand the firing of people who expose them to such a challenging idea, but also to violently riot on campus to prevent confronting ideas being expressed. Extreme reactions to mere ideas, whether it's the kind of emotional crushing we see of students who need a safe space complete with Play-Doh and puppies in which to cope, or whether it's the violence we see at the other extreme, demonstrate the risk before us. The right to freedom of conscience to believe and to express that belief. And I say that whether it's a religious view or not, is the core of what it means to be a human being. That should be enough to make most people willing to fight for it. And yet, in a nation where we didn't get these things in the first place through the spilling of blood, though it has been fought for in wars subsequent, it's pretty easy for them to be taken for granted. And so we've got to ask, why has such a toxic ideology been given this opportunity? Part of the answer is that we have for too long assumed that Menzies' grand statement was a truth so self-evident as to be incapable of change. Another is that the new Marxist left have been very effective in their march through the institutions. It boomed in the fertile climate of the 60s and 70s, where the combination of the women's rights movement, the growing understanding of the bad way in which some minorities have been treated and the aftermath of World War II combined to give the, uh, the idea of collective guilt some appeal. Though we've had plenty of warning in an academic sense, I don't think we've heeded it until the results have started to become apparent in more recent years. Now, plenty's been said about the march through the institutions and I don't intend to repeat that, other than to observe that the dominance of our universities has delivered control of the thinking of now at least two generations of young people, as well as the teacher class that now educates our primary and secondary students, and the media that frames the way we understand the political debates of our time. The per pervasiveness of the efforts to remedy structural disadvantage are now corrupted into a mechanism 
to promote a radical minority elite into more powerful positions and tear down those who represent old power structures. <coughs> but relevant for this time is the way in which it has captured the modern Labor Party. The Labor Party of old, the kind that appealed to working class people like my grandparents, who promised to help the poor with its belief in universalism, the idea that we are all deeply equal humans, and the primacy of the traditional family is all but gone. Labor's left's rise and the dominance that the neo-Marxist agenda has within that group means it has captured Labor's identity. Identity politics is its cheap road to power. This new elite, exclusive and ever so woke, has in fact disdain for the traditional family, actively seeks to break it down with new genders, new family forms and greater dependence on the state for the roles that family used to play in education, in sharing values and in care for times of need. There is some irony, I think, in the fact that Labor's historical rise was about a reaction to a conservative elite, harking back almost to the feudal order. In the modern world, it seems only the conservative side of politics is still willing to fight for universalism. It's a fascinating shift. But it also represents what I think is our greatest road out of this horrible mess. It will take a rising courage from all within the Liberal Party to confront this wrong-headedness wherever it is seen and to deeply reconnect with the fundamental values of being a classical Liberal or a Conservative. That leadership is important because those silenced and shamed Australians who know the new order is deeply wrong will take heart, get encouragement and become braver when we give them the space to do so. I'll give you an example. There's often talk about women's role in the party and canvassing of the need for gender quotas. I see very little attempt made by those who support them on our side to reconcile that belief with the reality that it reflects an acceptance and an incorporation of identity politics into our very structure. But when we do that, we hollow out the core of who we really are. And that won't work electorally, nor in reality. But universality, that is a good fit for who we are. The deep respect for the dignity of every individual on an equal basis before the law. It shows how far the political parties have moved, that universality and respect for family now have a home in the Liberal and National parties that they don't have in Labor. It's also a road forward for us politically. We've got an opportunity to build a new covenant with the people who would have once been Labor's heartland, but whose values just don't fit it anymore. Our belief in universality and the value of strong families as a bulwark against the big state will appeal if we make the effort to share it in a way that transcends tribal notions of, you know, red good, blue bad, or vice versa. That depth of communication, the willingness to speak frankly and speak up to the trades, the nurses, the labourers, the hairdressers, the small businessmen and women will pay us dividends if we invest in it. To use the language that uh, was used by Matthew Lesh in his book Democracy in a Divided Australia, we have a chance to build our trust with the outsiders of labour as it chases the smaller but powerful group of inners of the new elite. 
His task should lie with politicians, but we shouldn't forget that politics is always downstream of culture. That means political efforts must aim to reshape culture in a way that respects fundamental freedoms. It also means that everyone who contributes to culture must play their role. It's been heartening to see some literary backlash against the imposition of rules forbidding cultural appropriation, the idea that you're only qualified to write about characters with whom you share a lived experience. We shape our culture by connecting better to the cultural institutions in our communities and by helping each of them develop a culture of valuing basic freedoms, of universality. And everyone in corporate Australia has a role to play. There can be no more jumping on identity politics bandwagons from corporate Australia like we saw in the same-sex marriage debate or more recently in the mining company's open push for a constitutionally entrenched Indigenous voice to Parliament. No more skewed gender sensitivity training imposed from the administrations of universities. No more enforcement of the double speak of politically correct language in the workplace. No more threats from the ASX to demand listed companies justify their social licence to operate, undoubtedly by sufficient virtue signalling on the pet issues of the left. Shareholder interests be damned. No more businesses caving to demands from sleeping giants to have views that they are more willing to accept. No more acceptance by doctors of censorship that defies biology. I'm in a room of people who I know have significant influence in these spheres. It's time for us all to show courage about pushing back on the flow of identity politics into corporate life. I acknowledge it won't be easy. Notice the way, though, say Glencore's decision to get out of coal corresponds nicely with the rise of large industry super funds whose leftist underpinning is now being exercised in their capacity as shareholders. Not the only motivation, sure, but it played a role. The difficulty of the task is proportionate to our past complacency. But take heart. The fact that the left achieved such massive cultural change in a matter of less than 50 years means it can be similarly undone over that time frame. We just have to demonstrate the same level of dogged commitment. There are two reasons why this should matter to you and to everyone. The first is that basic human freedoms are under attack. Freedom of conscience, the right to think and believe for yourself and its corollaries, the right to freedom of association and speech. Whatever you believe isn't worth, well, worth much at all if you have no right to gather and share it with others. We need to fight for these because without them, we aren't truly free human beings with the dignity of the individual that made our civilization rise. But the other reason is, I guess, more practical, more real politic. Without them, we will not enjoy the prosperity that has blessed us in recent years, indeed, for most of our history. Our relative wealth as a nation is not a coincidence of geography, nor the windfall of having stuffed a mine under the ground. It's the product of these fundamental freedoms, the equality before the law, the protection of an individual's right to property, the ability to choose for ourselves the best available staff for our business, the ability to think and to solve the problems that we face is the product of intellectual freedom, freedom of conscience, association and speech. Take them away and we are no longer the smart, entrepreneurial, frontier country. We won't even be a lucky country. 
We can have none of the wealth we have come to expect without it. We haven't had a major recession in 27 years. Under this government, unemployment is at its lowest level since mid-2011 and welfare dependency is, quite significantly, at its lowest level in over 30 years. Jobs growth is at an all-time high. Now, given my role, I might be a little biased, but these figures don't lie. We are doing, economically, pretty well. But it's so well that most young people these days can't fathom what it's like to live in tough times. How could they? In many places, particularly in urban areas, many have had it good for so long that even our definition of the necessities of life is wildly different to what they were in my parents' generation. If you've grown up with all of these benefits um, economically, you'll have a sizeable portion blind to the privileges afforded to them, the many opportunities they can and should take advantage of, but also uh, an ignorance of what is at stake, what could be lost. Make no mistake, our strong economy is the direct result of our foundational freedoms and our democratic institutions. And so we need to fight for them. Many of the same people who call for greater social equality and all the benefits they see as their right, there's that word again, and of course at someone else's expense, are blind to the innate benefits they enjoy because of that economic position. But they're wrong. A 2018 paper on inequality by the Productivity Commission found that the last 27 years of basically uninterrupted growth in Australia has significantly improved living standards for all Australians in every income group and particularly for those who are poorer. It found that Australia's tax system has been effective in reducing inequality. It can feel safer avoiding the conversation on social issues because they can feel like landmines at the best of times. But the longer we sit comfortably talking only about the economy and give free reign for others to shape the social debate, the greater the harm we face. We need to start to shift debate on the role of government and other institutions in the lives of ordinary Australians. The people who don't know or who have forgotten that getting to a better place in life can and start with taking control and responsibility for one's own life. Taking responsibility, owning the decisions that come with freedom, owning the consequences of our choices. We must continue to point out the absurdity of those calling for ever greater social equality while weakening the very foundations of our economy that deliver, in practical terms, genuine social improvement. We must remind people, especially younger people, who just don't know their history, what the consequences will be of shattering the economy in the name of identity politics. By doing so, we can take back the reins of the public debate and share the rich benefits of our fundamental freedoms with another generation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. I can confidently say that uh, we at CIS uh, 
endorse many of your points, if, if anything, all of your points. It was a very substantial, yeah, I was going to say, I'm not at the ABC, am I? <laughs> it's my other job. No, that was fantastic. Sound and style and substance, and we're grateful for those remarks. The point about identity politics is a very, very important one. I mean, it does seek to divide people by race and religion, ethnicity and gender. And we at CIS in the course of the last year have created a program called Culture, uh, Prosperity and Civil Society. It's led by my colleague, Jeremy Samet. And um, we do raise these issues. It does, as you say, impose restraints on freedom of, freedom of speech. And it's got to the point where there are certain subjects that can't be discussed openly without inspiring massive hysteria and com condemnation. Um, I want to acknowledge uh, in the presence Nick Greiner. Nick Greiner, of course, is the former uh, New South Wales Premier and also the current president of the Federal Liberal Party. Good to see you, Nick. Nick was here on Tuesday night with his old nemesis, Bob Carr. They did an event uh, previewing the state election. That was terrific. And I saw, saw the Sydney Morning Herald the next day said that you should have a show called the Bob, <laughs> the Bob and Nick Show. That's how well it went. <laughs> um, now it's time for Q&A. And I'd like to ask uh, uh, Luca Belgiorno-Nettis for the first question. Jane, just uh, the microphone here for Luca. <laughs> Pressure's on, mate. Difficult to get away from identity politics, Amanda, because we all in some way come to the table with our own identities. I mean, I'm a sort of first-generation migrant and, um, you know, from a, a wealthy family and, you know, I can't get away from that. Uh, I would suggest, and, and I'm no um, Labor supporter and I'm very conscious of uh, the President of the Liberal Party being here, and, and if we are really truly independent in our own thinking, we could say, well... Identity politics also goes to the point of, of identifying with a particular political party, one or the other. So I would be very careful about actually promoting political parties. I mean, I know that that is somewhat your... your I'm afraid stance. I can't get away, from, <laughs> get away from it. That's yeah. your, your brand, fine. <laughs> um, you look at me as if that's as some sort of a heretical, heretical <laughs> proposition, but I think... If we're trying to really fo form a, a, uh, a society that is um, universal, mm -hmm. in, believes in universalism, let's try and uh, reach across the divide rather than sort of entrench ourselves in our particular political position. Look, I, th Look, I think there's, there's some value... In, um, in making an effort to get to know the other side and get to know them well. Part of the reason for that is that it humanises them. Um, you can't be as um, aggressively and, and tribal in an ugly way in circumstances where you know your opponent's a decent person even if you believe they're deeply wrong. Um, so there is certainly gains to be made in raising the tone and the civility of public debate that would come from those efforts um, and in many ways raising the tone of people's behaviour and the civility of the debate uh, would I think go some of the way to starting to restore people's willingness to listen and trust their political um, representatives once more. Next question, Richard Beatty. Amanda, you mentioned the long march through the institution, the Italian philosopher and communist Antonio Gramsci's idea when the opportunity to socialise and turn to communists 
Western Europe wouldn't be achieved in the same way as it was achieved in Russia. Now, what I don't understand is how this idea that really leads, and it's the Labor Party uh, as, as the, your opponents, who have picked up and retained in their constitution the idea of a socialist future. And we've seen it best illustrated in Britain with uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, uh, ideas. Now, do you have any insights into why this identity politics, why the West has taken the change it is, when we have the modern example of Venezuela regularly in the news? So that's the alternative. Of course, they weren't taught history at school, so that's been a big problem. They don't know about Mao and Stalin. Now, why is it, do you think, that we have this extraordinary wish and advocacy for the most terrible way of human organisation? Look, good question. Um, I think for many young people, it's about ignorance. They're not taught it in school. Um, they get taught um, a, an almost fictional version of history at university and um, then they, they come to life not being exposed to at least enough of the world's history to be able to appreciate the danger that, that lies with, uh, with socialism. But I think there's a role played too in perpetuating that ignorance that comes with the social media age. People who are young don't watch the news. They don't, um, they don't necessarily read in the same way that um, most people in this room, I expect, do. And they get their information from social media, which operates on the basis of algorithms that reflect back to you more of what you already believe and already know. And so you can pick up on a few buzzwords like fairness and equality, which are ones claimed by those who like socialism. Um, and it sets off a path of reaffirming a whole lot of positive stuff on the subject rather than a balanced view. Um, we have a big role in educating people to do more than that. And, and that's, a, that's a huge cultural challenge, um, one that I think will take an awful lot of time particularly given that it straddles technological change as well as the content. Yeah, last year, uh, the Centre for Independent Studies commissioned YouGov to uh, do some polling of uh, millennials in this country. Now, millennials, of course, are people who were born between roughly 1982 and 1998, so they're people in their 20s, early to mid-30s. And we found that I think it was something like 60% of millennials in this country supported socialism. Uh, about 62% had a hostile view towards market capitalism. Something like 62% believe that living conditions in this country have deteriorated dramatically in the course of the last 40 years, which goes against everything you were saying before. And it said that something like 62% believe that the government spends uh, less on health and education today than it did uh, 10 years ago. Self-evidently wrong. And on the socialism question, I think something like only 20% of millennials knew who even Mao Zedong was. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it does reflect trends that are taking place uh, in America and in Britain. So the Corbyn effect, the Sanders effect, these guys are very popular with young people. Uh, next question, Parnell McGuinness. Amanda, I was wondering um, if you could tell us what modern liberal means to you and whether you define yourself as one. 
Look, it's a good question because I think you'll find so many people in the party define it differently. Um, I think of myself as a conservative person um, in terms of my social and approach to family kind of values, uh, but who really values the classical liberal ideas. And I don't see them as incompatible. In fact, I see them as necessary for one another. Um, I find it much harder to understand how some colleagues um, can have, you know, for instance, pro-identity politics kind of ideas and call themselves a classical liberal. I find that very hard to reconcile. Um, that being said, I think the future of the party needs to have um, a continuing presence of people who are both conservative and more smaller liberal. That's important, I think, for our political survival and it's important for challenging us intellectually to um, to get the balance of our ideas right. It, it's a bulwark against groupthink um, and I think that's really important. I hope that answers your question sufficiently. Sorry, what in particular is a meaningful movement? No, I think I'm what a liberal always was. Um, and I'm very comfortable with being an old liberal, if that's what it makes me. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, um, John Howard has said that Victoria is the Massachusetts of Australia. And it's been said that Queensland is a bit like the Texas of... Yeah, right. yeah that's right. And then Queensland, where you're from, is the Texas of Australia. To what extent do you think that different states makes it more difficult for a Liberal to uh, express themselves in terms of reaching a broad constituency? Yeah, good question. I think there are some of those um, cultural differences that come with geography. Yeah. And um, I'm very comfortable with the idea that Brisbane is a little <laughs> bit... All of Queensland is a bit Texas-like. Certainly when you head up north, you get the big hats. Um, but it, it does pose challenges for us politically, but it's part of the reason why we need that broad church because if you have a, a very urban, uh, very cosmopolitan kind of you know, Melbourne that needs to be able to be represented well by people that will include you know, those from North Queensland, those from Brisbane, um, then w we need to have a way of working through those local differences because, I mean, that's what representative democracy is supposed to be about. Um, and coming together to come up with something that works for everybody, at least, you know, most of the time. Next question. Yes. Sorry, I don't know you. Uh, hi, Amanda and everyone. My name is uh, Courtney Nguyen hi. from Liberal Branch. Um, thank you so much for the wonderful lunch and you deliver excellent freedom speech and this is one of my um, uh, concerns and my best interest is looking for freedom. Um, from your speech, I do uh, agree with you every point you mentioned about how the New South Wales um, government deliver service to the public, like for example, jobs growing, unemployment decre decrease, we're building schools, you know, in, in, in infrastructures like um, public transport. Even so my background is a real estate agent, so um, every Saturday I do open home. And just opposite my open home is, uh, across the road is, uh, is a, a new public school is building. 
So I know that um, our government is working really hard in delivering um, a really um, a fantastic service to the New South Wales people. But um, to this is my con two concerns is at the moment is I'm seeing that um, Australia is has a small bis small business failure is a this is a big um, potential um, potential and as well what I can still can see that. Homeless people is on the street as well. I just wondering that have the government or have uh, government done anything or do we do anything to improve these two issues? That's my concern. Um, look, if I understand correctly, you're you're concerned about the people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, and I think you're right to say it, it remains a problem. But the amount of money that governments have put into the problem of homelessness has only ever been on the rise. It hasn't reduced in any time in the last, say, 20 years. So we need to, I think, evaluate the effectiveness of what we're doing. Um, and I think that means coming back to some of the cultural underpinnings of how we go about policy. It, it used to be the case that a local community would rally around a person who found themselves without a home, um, their extended family, their local church, their... Um, their neighbours would help them out. They would help them through adversity and take some ownership of people, you know, in their area who were doing it tough. The the welfare state, higher taxes, um, all of those things mean that people are able to check out mentally from those responsibilities and say, that's the government's job. It's always the government's job. And the reality is I don't think government is capable of offering the kind of compassion, the kind of personal investment that's needed to turn a life around in circumstances of extreme hardship. That's always going to be the challenge we face, I think, until we confront the idea that big government isn't the answer to all problems and, in fact, a stronger social fabric usually is. I hope that's enough of an answer to your question. Richard Warburton. Thank you, Amanda. Andy, you mentioned uh, the need for the broad church in politics and mm -hmm. couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You also mentioned your belief that uh, you're conservative and also small or liberal. Uh, it's important to bring them together. Again, mm -hmm. couldn't agree more. But to do that, um, unless it's done properly with leadership to be able to pull that together, to be able to make compromises rather than division, is such an important part of what we're going to look forward to, have, must, must look forward to going forward. I agree. Um, strong leadership is a big part of the answer. Um, the other part of the answer, I think, is um, each of us within the team anchoring our beliefs um, in, in those parts of the classical liberal or conservative tradition um, that are our hooks so that we aren't torn apart by things like the, the slow creep of identity politics into the party room, which you know, I'd argue has happened in recent years. Thank you, um, you mentioned uh, how the infiltration of the left is within our educational systems at all levels and I was wondering if, if we can see much more uh, introduction of the International Baccalaureate, which is a system that of course is over many continents and therefore unable to be infiltrated by necessarily elements here in Australia with a predisposition to certain groups within Australia. But if we had the International Baccalaureate available at every school then maybe that is our pathway out because the children will actually get educated. You have to do six components in the HSC. You have to do geography, history, a language. 
you have to do a science, a math. We have children doing HSC who do none of those things in the components because that's been taken away. And I see that as part of our way out. I've been in the education system. I was a teacher in secondary school and I just think it's criminal what's happening to our education. Do you see that as our way out? Look, you've got hands-on experience in the classroom, which um, is hard to substitute for. But um, I like the idea that parents have a choice of whether or not to go for the IB or to go for the local program. But I um, am always suspicious of um, the international approach being the answer. In, in many things, when we, um, we cede our sovereignty or, or our control over content um, to the international arena, we often get um, some ideas that we would find pretty harmful as well. So I think we just got to take it step by step. The IB might be a part of the solution, at least in the short term, but ultimately we need people of courage to clean up the curriculum here. Yeah, we are running out of time. Final question, Jeremy Samet. If people want to know how to end homelessness, I can recommend uh, the report we published last year by Carlos de Brara Excellent. on ending homelessness in Australia. But that's not my question. My, my, <laughs> <coughs> But my, I do like the plug. <laughs> my question is, if we're talking about universalism in a liberal democracy, we're really talking about the ability for us to live harmoniously mm. despite our differences and by respecting the fundamental freedoms of everyone. On that point, the real litmus, litmus test of that is religious freedom, which yeah. is an issue that we've done a lot of work of through my colleague, Peter Curdy in particular. Uh, we've yet to see a really meaningful response to that issue, I think, by the coalition, uh, let alone by Labor. Um, I guess is this one of those issues where, which is going to be also be a litmus test of always was Liberals versus modern Liberals as well? Look, it's, um, it's challenging for us. I'm not going to dress that up. Um, I feel really strongly, as you might expect, about the issue of religious freedom. And I found the work of Peter um, to be really very helpful in the work I've tried to do in this field. If I am very straight with the audience, I'd say I actually think the the real solution is to remove many of the impediments to the exercise of religious freedom that exist in many of the discrimination acts in this country. Um, I'm also enough of a realist to say I don't think I can achieve that politically now, though I hope we'll never give up on it because it's worth fighting for. Um, that means... We need a solution for now and the government's solution for now is, as you know, um, that there should be a Religious Discrimination Act so that it has a similar protected quality to other minority kind of statuses, although without an 18C-like weapon in it. I think it would be a terrible thing for a coalition government to put in another 18C-like structure that could weaponise blasphemy. You know, I just think that would be a terrible thing. Um as a compromise solution, I think what's proposed has the potential to do the right thing by people's freedoms, um, but the devil will be in the detail. And um, while in principle what's been announced sounds good, um, I'm really interested and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested and excited to see what it will look like because it's a really interesting legal problem to try and solve. This is the, the law dork in me. You know, the, the drafting in it will be really very important and I don't think we can have sufficient comfort that it will do what it needs to without harming other things until we see those words. Ladies and gentlemen, Amanda Stoker. Thank you very much.